This is the Monday, July 3rd, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. Hostilities now seem to be actually opening over the whole South Pacific. And just now comes the word from the President's office that a second air attack has been reported on Army and Navy bases in Manila. Thus, we have official announcements from the White House that Japanese airplanes have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii and have now attacked Army and Navy bases in Manila. We return you now to New York and we'll give you later information as it comes along from the White House. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, with an eye on the upcoming July 4th Independence Day weekend, We bring you a story of siblings, sacrifice, and service as we enlist in the U.S. Navy with a trio of my fellow Garden State natives, brothers Bill, Benny, and Barton, who find themselves at the very center of the World War II fight in the Pacific. FDR taps Bill to run his first map room. Benny serves as the gunnery and anti-aircraft officer aboard the legendary USS Enterprise, which served in all but two Pacific engagements after Pearl Harbor. The Japanese reported sinking the carrier so many times, only to face the Big E again, that the ship became known as the Galloping Ghost of the Oahu Coast, regarded as fearsome and supernatural, unsinkable. But the ship owed her success to more earthly sources, the guts, skill, and tenacity of her U.S. Navy crew. By the time the guns fell silent, Enterprise had earned more decorations than any other ship in the conflict. While Benny served on the carrier, and his brother Bill served in the map room, the youngest brother, Barton, got a hand from his mother for what she thought would be a safer assignment away from the fighting. Instead, Barton ended up a prisoner of war under cruel, brutal conditions after his post in the Philippines fell to the Japanese onslaught. Our guest this week is Bill's daughter, as well as Barton's niece, Sally Mott Freeman, and she tells the story of how the family tried to find their lost man and answers an over 70-year family mystery in a depth unknown even to them. Her book is called The Jersey Brothers, A Missing Naval Officer in the Pacific and His Family's Quest to Bring Him Home. Sally Mott Freeman was a speechwriter as well as a media and public relations executive for 25 years, and she's currently board chair of the Writers' Center. 
you can follow her at Mott Freeman on Twitter or like her at Facebook.com slash Mott Freeman. Okay, now that we've heard the air raid sirens warning that Pearl Harbor and the Philippines are under attack, let's join Sally Mott Freeman at our battle station and meet the Jersey Brothers. I'm joined via Skype by Sally Mott Freeman, author of The Jersey Brothers, a missing naval officer in the Pacific and his family's quest to bring him home. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. I'm delighted to be here this evening. Thank you so much, Dean. Well, we spent about 20 minutes here before we hit record just talking about what an amazing story this was, your process, and I'm really enthusiastic about just bringing books like this to listeners, letting people pick up the Jersey Brothers, hopefully, and have a little behind-the-scenes look at what it took to put together what's really a well-crafted book. It's an amazing story. The Jersey Brothers starts with a brief introduction. It's only a page or so, and yet it hooks the reader into a story that's part mystery, part war story, part gothic novel. It's really a flashbulb memory. That's how I read it. The strength of the writing is impressive. I know that you know about economy of words, but this was really amazing. The scene is at Lilac Hedges, your grandmother's home on the Jersey Shore. By way of recapping that intro for our listeners, explain just how you got it down into that tight, vivid scene. Well, first of all, it was a vivid memory going to Lilac Hedges every summer and going to the shore at Allenhurst and Asbury Park and seeing our dear cousin there was an annual event that we Mott kids all looked forward to. And here we were again playing on the side lawn, playing badminton, and our favorite part of the evening was when the bats started dive bombing the birdie. We loved that. And we were sort of excited about them and also a little afraid of them at the same time. And the parents just let us do our thing in the evening. And all of a sudden we heard voices rise and a glass break. And this was in the early 1960s. I was eight or nine years old. And we got dead quiet and walked toward the house. It was on the front porch of the house. This was a house that was surrounded by porches and gazebos. And so it was open to the outside, covered, but open to the outside. And it was my father and my mother and my aunt and my grandmother. And a fight had broken out. And once again, the subject was about this mysterious Uncle Barton. And then we heard a glass break and my mother started to cry. And I could tell that my father, who was usually the one in control of situations, he was sort of a take charge guy, tried to sort of bring down the temperature of it. But he was unable to, it just continued for another five or 10 minutes. And, and then I heard my mother go upstairs. We were supposed to stay another four or five days and we left the next morning. And without a doubt, once again, it was what happened to this mysterious uncle who was unaccounted for at the end of World War II. We really didn't understand. We knew that he was important because even though my grandmother had four children, you would hardly know there were others besides this Uncle Barton because there were pictures of him on every wall of every room in the house. So it was just an enduring family mystery that we talked about 
all of our lives. As young adults, it was a parlor game at Thanksgivings and Christmases. We'd get together and we would talk about it. And the explanations that were given us over time just never really squared. And it all began that evening. It was sort of the pit in the stomach that never really went away. And I wanted to find out once and for all what happened. And that was the beginning. It's an American story, but also more than that, a human story. It's American because your uncles and your father are wearing the uniform, but it's a human story in that we all have tales that are passed down to us, mysteries, things about relatives that are shady. We don't know how they died or what they died from or where they died even sometimes. Not shady in a negative sense, but you're a child. You want to ask questions, especially when you see these big paintings. You described the painting of Uncle Barton, I believe, at the top of the stairs. And you talk about how his eyes are following you. And it's just such a vivid memory. And I got this feeling that you had downloaded it right into the reader's mind from your own memory as a child. Knowing your father, Bill, you're saying, okay, this is a man who's in the Navy. He's a tough guy. He's ordered, but this is his mother. So you're always going to be your mother's son. And there's so much strife there and there's stress and there's things that you can't understand as a child. We're immediately on your side for that. We're meeting him. We're meeting Barton and Benny here. We're meeting just through his portrait. They are like the Zeligs in World War II. And this is a phrase that author David O. Stewart, who I interviewed about his book, American Emperor, on Aaron Burr, and also about his book, Madison's Gift, on James Madison. He described James Madison that way. He's everywhere. Every time something's happening, he's this figure in the background. That's how your uncles are and your father are. Just to rattle off some things here, Pearl Harbor, FDR's map room, the Doolittle Raid, meetings with Winston Churchill, the Philippines invasion, right there with the decision with Truman to drop the atom bomb with the casualty estimates. This is a story that has a scope as broad as the Pacific Theater itself, which may sound like a cliche, but it's true. Many people focus on the European war. It's very riveting. But if folks want to read just one book on the Pacific theater, kind of as a gateway into learning the larger story, see what grabs them. The Jersey Brothers is the book to do that. You can get a sample of so many things that are happening. And then realizing that this book just wasn't made by magic elves, that there was an author and editor and a publisher that were able to bring this together that required a lot of work from them and input. How did you get started on researching this massive amount of information and then editing and distilling it down into the Jersey Brothers, especially since you kept getting new pieces of information as you were going along? That's exactly correct. I was sort of riding the bicycle while I was building it, as they say. I started in my parents' attic where many of these discoveries are made, and I found a stack of correspondence files. It was my father's cron file, they call it in the government, where the incoming tab down on the left and the replies are on the right, and it was from 19... 19- 40 to 19, two thirds of the way through 1943. And it started in Naval Intelligence, where he was the night that the 14 part message was coming into Naval Intelligence and what did it really mean? And he was there the next day, Saturday and Sunday. And then they get word, of course, while the ambassadors are talking peace in Washington, that Pearl Harbor has been attacked. 
at that very hour, his brother, Benny, who was the gunnery and anti-aircraft officer on the USS Enterprise at Pearl Harbor, was returning to Pearl from a covert mission to take bombers to Wake Island to shore up their defenses because, for all intents and purposes, negotiations with Japan had ceased. And when planes left the Enterprise as they approached Pearl Harbor. It was approaching the morning of December 7th. It was supposed to be there in time for morning colors. They tangled with the Japanese planes that were attacking from Kido Butai. And 24 hours later, Barton, who was an officer in the Navy Supply Corps, was at Cavite Naval Base, which is right outside of Manila. It's the U.S. naval installation on Luzon, which is the capital island of the Philippines. And he's wounded by shrapnel from the surprise Japanese attack, which took place just hours later. And his ship left him behind and he was being treated in the hospital when the whole Asiatic fleet was ordered out because with MacArthur's bombers on the ground, basically destroyed wingtip to wingtip on the ground, there was no air cover. So you had Bill and Naval Intelligence, you had Benny barely escaping Pearl Harbor, and you had Barton wounded and then listed as missing in the Philippines, all of a sudden I realized I had a bigger story on my hand than just what happened to this uncle. And the more I researched it, I went to archives all over this country. I went to the Philippines. I went to all the prison camps. I interviewed hundreds of people. I wrote many more. As my research deepened and my discoveries deepened, I just came to understand that not only were they, as you say, Zelig-like, because it absolutely was the case, but their stories were magnificently intertwined with one another. And all the while, I was getting more information, and I was having Japanese documents translated, and I experimented with the writing. I mean, I was a professional writer in my career, but I had never written anything of this scope. I started taking classes. I went to University of Iowa summer writers festival for a month to really discover the best narrative arc for this story and really it was there that it began to emerge and then i did a table of contents and i started to write the chapters and decided that alternating the brothers story and also the home front lilac hedges was the best way to tell the story though i rewrote and wrote and added many times over for example I had a lot of family correspondence, which showed that my grandmother was anything but compliant with the gender roles of her time. She was tough. She was educated. She wrote Roosevelt. He wrote her back. She wrote the secretaries of the Army and the Navy and the Secretary of War. And she wanted answers. And they wrote her back. I found all of that. And maybe someone less sympathetic or a non-family member would think that that was a little audacious of her. I mean, they did have a war to fight. And here she was writing all of these members of Congress and so forth. But then some five years into this project, my New Jersey cousin that I had been playing badminton with that night when the bats started dive bombing came to my mother's funeral. He was in fact her godson. And he put a stack of my grandmother's wartime diaries on my desk just before we left for Arlington Cemetery. And it was this strange mix of grief over the loss of my mother and elation that these diaries had surfaced. And when I had a chance to read them, it showed a very soft, sympathetic, grieving, fearful parent. And so I had her public story and her private story that I could then also weave in. 
she writes FDR, which you say, okay, she's going to write the president, but that he writes her back. Yes. And it's, it really says something about her strength of will and, uh, okay, she had, there's political connections, political considerations. Okay. But he writes her back with a, a seriousness. Everybody writes her back and speaks to her, including your father and your other uncle, who we know where he is. Everybody is treating her with care. It's something to read where you think they're treating her as an equal, not just, okay, we're the men here. We're all fighting the war. We understand you have a problem, but can you just leave us alone? Those letters and those diary entries from her, it really shows a view of the war that I think is unique to us where we think, okay, everyone had their role and we forget that these are real people. It's easy to think these men are on the enterprise, for instance, and they fight the war and then they just go away. It's easy to look at history as a play and forget that people have lives before and after. And to see it from this mother's point of view, from this woman's point of view, that she's pouring everything into this and she's not going to just sit there. She's not going to take no for an answer. She's not going to take, well, we have plenty of people that are missing. And as frustrating as I know that that was at the time for everyone, she's doing what she has to do to be able to live with this. She can't live with the fact that, well, maybe the next letter I write will be the one that will tell me what happened. She's going to just keep doing it. Exactly correct. And then there was an organization, perhaps this is the subject of the next book. I don't go into it too much. I mean, it's a story in itself, but there was an organization called the Baton Relief Organization, which started in New Mexico because an entire National Guard contingent was captured. And it really animated the citizens of New Mexico and the families affected. This was in the Philippines. And they organized themselves to raise money to lobby the governments because, you know, this Europe first strategy, which after Pearl Harbor, Winston Churchill immediately got himself to Washington because he knew the American citizenry would be enraged. And he said, you have to help us defeat the Nazis first because we were very limited in our resources at that time. We had really, we were in a state of almost complete disarmament because of Everyone's losses following World War One and the pacifists went out. We really didn't have much of a fleet. Our airplanes were outmoded and both the Japanese and the Germans were way, way ahead of us technologically and in size, strength and training of their military. So we had to make a decision. It couldn't be a little bit to both theaters. It had to be primarily our best effort to the defeat of the Nazis. Well, the Bataan Relief Organization didn't like that. The Nazis didn't attack us. Japan attacked us. And that organization spread to a nationwide organization. Chapters were popping up all over the country. And guess who was in charge of the New Jersey chapter? (laughs) (laughs) You know, Helen Cross started it and Arthur joined in and she raised money. And that group, by the way, was the group that raised money and organized to have those Red Cross boxes with food and supplies and medicines and a reminder that the home front had not forgotten about these prisoners, had them packaged and shipped to all the prisoners of war in the Pacific theater, which is remarkable. Helen Cross, that's your grandmother. That's her saying here, Barton Cross's mother. Definitely not sitting there waiting for somebody else to take care of it. She's doing things. And those packages, as becomes clear here throughout the Jersey Brothers, that's so valuable to them. It's even more valuable to these men that are being held by the Japanese than it is to the ones that are being held as POWs in Germany. And you make that 
comparison there about the mortality rate the mortality rate oh, yes. at, what was it two percent there for in 2% germany in germany almost 41 percent in the pacific theater in terms of deaths so 41 percent of the allied prisoners of war of the japanese died during their imprisonment two percent of the allied prisoners of the germans died in imprisonment it was a very starkly different set of circumstances on both sides and I would say that the difference is there was a cultural chasm between what Western cultures expected in terms of how they would be treated as prisoners of war and how the Japanese military and actually the Japanese culture perceived an either captured or surrendered prisoner. Every Japanese boy learns from the earliest age, learned from the earliest age that under the Bushido code, which is the ancient samurai code, that surrender not only brings shame on the individual, it brings shame on the family and it brings shame to the country. And the preference was always to kill yourself or engage in a bonsai charge rather than have the enemy take you prisoner. And this was the reason that they did not sign the Geneva Conventions of 1929, because in those conventions, it required that if a soldier or sailor were taken prisoner, then their next of kin would be notified. And the Japanese said, well, well, that's against everything we stand for. We're not going to sign that. And that, that is why the rules of war for World War II were not adhered to by the Japanese because they were not signatories to those conventions for that reason. You talk about the POW treatment throughout the Jersey Brothers and the view of Bushido as among the most dishonorable acts it had was surrender, to give yourself up, not to die fighting. You quote a Japanese war reporter, yes. Aishi Hino, who says of the soldiers who surrendered at Bataan, he's looking at them and he says, quote, I feel like I am watching filthy water running from the sewage of a nation, unquote. What's been the modern reader's reaction to the brutality in Imperial Japan? Because it's something that because of trying to turn Japan towards the Soviets after the war, we don't deal with it the way that we've dealt with German atrocities. What have people reacted to that? Are some of them hearing it for the first time? I think several of my readers are hearing it for the first time. And why is that? I would say that I definitely have history buffs interested in this story and liking this story. But the non-history buffs who are reading it for the first time are reading it because it's a story. It's not just history. It's a story. And, you know, Rudyard Kipling said, if history were told in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. So those that are new, to, relatively new to the Pacific theater and learning of these atrocities for the first time are shocked. They are shocked. And when I've been on book tour, I'm still on tour, and talk to people about it, they say, why didn't we punish them? Well, you just said it yourself. We didn't want them to fall to communism in the end. But all I can describe it as is a cultural chasm. They were as different in their beliefs and in their military training from Western culture as could be possible on the same planet. And it was brutal. My own reaction, I mean, I had read plenty about it, but I read a lot more, of course, in the research for the book. And I can tell you, I wasn't eating a lot of sushi when I was working on this project. I mean, it was it was nauseating. There were times when I was reading some of this material that I would, thought I would be physically ill. 
The Jersey Brothers begins four months into Barton's incarceration in the Philippines. You have to deal with all of those depictions of POW treatment. They're very stark. At one point on New Guinea, the Japanese soldiers there resort to eating captured Australians. This is eating human beings, cannibalism. And you write in the Jersey Brothers that they had three different translators translate it because they couldn't believe what they were reading. I guess this was decrypted. It was just so shocking. I mean, this is setting the world back to the Dark Ages, just as we say the Nazis did. But we talk about that and made the Germans face it, had denazification. When I've talked to authors who researched the Holocaust and Germany in World War II, I always ask how they managed to put aside all that suffering and darkness. Now, you were just saying about literally being nauseated, which I can see. You read a book on the Holocaust, you read here about the treatment of POWs. So what was your refuge from that, especially since you're writing here about your own family? You're feeling your father and your grandfather, your uncle's pain, certainly this uncle you never met but felt like you knew. What was your refuge from all that? I'm a person that meditates, and I'm a sort of a spiritual East meets West in terms of my religion. I spent a lot of time reflecting on it. I think in the early going, I was shocked and enraged, and it took a while for that to sort of level off. I don't think anybody needed to hear a lot of invectives about how the Japanese treated the American prisoners six and a half decades earlier, on the one hand. On the other hand, to tell of those atrocities, at the same time, I am learning about and writing about the pluck of these prisoners. It was as though the greater the cruelty, the better organized the prisoners became. Their own rage galvanized them to band together and to help one another. What is it? A rope is as strong as its weakest link. And they knew that they understood that. And they they worked together. And those stories were heartening. They would bring tears to your eyes that they could have a sense of humor at times. And also there were a few of the guards, you know, they weren't all one brand of cruel. Some of them had been educated in the United States. One of them had been a representative from Japan on the Davis Cup tennis team. Another had gone to medical school in the United States. It was heartening to read that they were not all of the same ilk, if you will. But I would say my refuge was, boy, I sure had some riveting material to work with. And I'd like to think I balanced the story of this pluck and this galvanized coming together of of these prisoners as sort of a counterbalancing human story of, oh, yeah, well, we're not as dumb as we look. And it was heartening to read the vignettes. I mean, I wanted to tell this story in a way that you felt it and saw it and heard it and smelled it. And I had an asset. This was a family story. I had those archives. But I also, it was a bit of a race against time. I started this 2005 is when I went to the Philippines. And I found people that knew Benny and worked with Benny on the Enterprise. When my father moved over from Naval Intelligence to set up the secret map room in the in the White House basement, I met his principal aide. I flew to California and spent several days with him. 
I located several fellow prisoners of Barton Cross and I traveled and sat with them and heard their stories. And so I was able to bring anecdotes, the jokes they told, the things they did in their spare time. And it created tremendous context for me. And I was living alone with this story for 10 years. And all I could hope was others would think it was just as remarkable, all these little data points along the way and how intertwined they were. I'm not sure that answered your question, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the important thing was you turned into the work and you got that perspective, however you got there, because this was a thing with all due respect, it may sound like a strange thing if you don't know Star Trek very well or the man behind it, but Gene Roddenberry serving in the Army Air Corps during the war before the Air Force is an independent wing of the military, he named the ship USS Enterprise after the carrier. And as I was reading the Jersey Brothers, I thought of something that I hadn't thought of before and I hadn't read anywhere, and it's probably out there somewhere. There's many, many writings on Star Trek. But I knew that he put Sulu in there to have a Japanese character, and I knew about his Ah. service. But I thought on the Enterprise of all ships, which wasn't even his original name for it. I think he wanted to call it the Constitution originally. But to put a Japanese character there and have him, him be the helmsman on the Enterprise, it's this idea that you talked about there. Roddenberry also said he regretted in the original series that he had all the Klingons be bad. And he said, I shouldn't have had a whole race of people that you never met a good one. Ah. And so that's why when he comes back again and he gets to do the next generation, he decides he's going to have the character of Worf who becomes beloved and is torn with his allegiances a lot of times, but always does the right thing and is very honorable because he felt he had portrayed the Klingons as all bad, which was an analogy with the Soviet Union, Klingon, the Kremlin. And that was supposed to be the whole Cold War thing. But Mm -hmm. that's a, a roundabout way and a pop culture way to bring back to this notion that in those six and a half decades you talked about, You've gone to Japan, you have people helping you research, you have the stories here of of some of the treatment that they get, and you can remind yourself here when you're reading the book that that's what is certainly important. And you can look at Japan today, just as we look at Germany today, as an ally and understand that this was a period where things like race where that's what you would call your nation. We look back at some of those quotes and we cringe today because if you said we're the most powerful race, you think, oh my gosh, this this person's an incredible racist. Not that there wasn't plenty of that with the Japanese looking at many of these Filipinos here that were helping these POWs and helping the resistance and fighting the the occupation. So that was definitely something they had in, in common with the Nazi Germany with that fascist ideology was the racist element. It's too bad we had to fight a world war to yes. get an idea of bringing people together and, and getting a little bit of, of an understanding. Well, it's interesting because racism was rampant on both sides. The Japanese thought we were big, hulking idiots and lazy and poorly disciplined. And, you know, we thought that they couldn't see because their eyes were slanted. And especially in today's culture of political correctness, I mean, the things that were appearing in newspapers, stock commentary was incredibly condescending. And then you have the Japanese on their own in the whole Pacific Rim. And, you know, they looked down on the Chinese and murdered them by the millions. I mean, look at the rape of Nanking. Filipinos, they thought they were inferior Malayan combo plates. And they would say these things. And that meant that they could 
come in and subjugate all of these peoples and sort of lead this greater co-prosperity sphere, as was their euphemism for their rape and plunder of the Far East. So on both sides, I would say that was the unfortunate case and may have prolonged the war. And by the way, those only 2% of the American prisoners killed in Germany, even though they were our enemy, Germany was our enemy, it was a commonly understood culture that had sort of a shared set of Judeo-Christian, or Christian anyway, values. And they understood each other, in other words, that one may have been a prisoner of the other, but there wasn't this huge cultural chasm that I referred to earlier. And also that we have so many German-Americans at the time, there were just tons that would have been yes. there fighting. I mean, Eisenhower is <laughs> not not a Japanese name, not a Malayan name. It's a it's obviously, that's where it goes back to so of much course. of it. So Very good point. Speaking of your research, you refer to your most important discoveries as Indiana Jones moments, which there you go. You're using your own pop culture reference there. But the ultimate fate of Barton, which I don't want to spoil for your readers, is one of those things that you do manage to sleuth out here through all that shoe leather work, through a 100 interviews, which is an amazing number. Stop and think of it. I don't think I've talked to a 100 different people in the past six months, if you don't count the show anyway. (laughs) I wonder if you'd list one of those smaller indie moments where you opened up something and you said, hey, this is helping me make my path forward. This is opening a door for me that I've been banging my head against. Well, there are a number of those, but I would say the one that really had me getting up and dancing in my kitchen when I discovered it. You know, there's there's something called the Veterans History Project, the Oral History Project, where interviewers are going out for Bureau of Medicine and Surgery, Army Air Corps, pharmacists, maids, sailors. They're interviewing all of these people and getting their oral histories before they, this World War II generation passes away. And this database grew and grew and grew, and it was really vertical growth when I started this project, for the same reason that I was in a hurry, they were in a hurry. And I checked it regularly, I checked the database regularly, and I found an interview of a Navy nurse who had been at Cavite Naval Base after it was attacked and she was treating these patients that had been injured and they also moved these patients and the nurses over to Manila from Cavite because it was destroyed. I knew from her name that she had been one of the nurses that treated these Navy patients, including Barton Cross. So I looked up the interview. I read the interview. It was conducted by the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery, which is sort of the medical arm, if you will, of the United States Navy. And so I found the number for the historian at Bureau of Medicine and Surgery, and I called and I inquired, and he was quite helpful, gave me the information about the Navy nurse, how to contact her, and so forth. And if I could just interrupt myself to say, I had been struggling for about a two-year period. I knew that Barton had been wounded at Cavite at the very beginning of the war, early December, right after Pearl Harbor. I knew that he began to appear on rosters at prison camps in May and June of 1942, but I could not locate exactly where he had been. He had not gone to Corregidor. He had not gone to Bataan. He had been injured. Where was he in that intervening five-month period? I couldn't find him. 
and there was an obvious gap in my father's research that was in that stack of correspondence files I mentioned at the beginning of our chat. He didn't know either. So I was on the phone with the historian at Bureau of Medicine and Surgery, and he gave me this information about the Navy nurse contact information. And then he said, by the way, we just got about 15 boxes from Kanakau, which was the old military hospital at Cavite, since named Sangley Point. He said they must have been overlooked. They're all from the 1940s, and it was the Navy doctors who were taken prisoner with their patients. It's all their records. I said, I'll be there in 20 minutes. I mean, I (laughs) live outside Washington, D.C. Bureau of Medicine and Surgery was at the time uh, on the old Naval Observatory campus right across from the State Department. And I was there inside a half an hour. And this gentleman led me down to an unheated, it was in January, as I recall, unheated storage room. And these boxes were all on the floor and not digitized, not even alphabetized. And I sat down and went through them one by one, and I used their asthmatic copier to make, I copied probably (laughs) 500 pages that day. And there I found Barton Cross, he was wounded, what the wounds were like, comments by the pharmacist, which prisoners were on which cots on which level of the hospital. They moved them to a, a women's musical college. They moved them to an elementary school, how they were being treated all throughout. Why? Because these doctors were doing their jobs. They had to keep records of their patients. I stumbled on this. You know, the Philippines sort of, I guess I won't say they kicked us out, but They really wanted to take over their own military facilities, and that was in the 90s, I believe, and into the early 2000s it continued. And they were sending these files back sort of bit by bit. And it just so happened that these had sat undiscovered for decades. So that was my biggest Indiana Jones moment. I wouldn't say it was my biggest. I would say it was in the top five. And it was really, it was really, really exciting, I must say. I mean, if you're in this business, that was the holy grail for me. (laughs) My guest wearing the Indiana Jones hat today, spelunking through all of that history for us, is Sally Mott Freeman, and she is author of The Jersey Brothers, a missing naval officer in the Pacific, and his family's quest to bring him home. You can follow her at Mott Freeman on Twitter or like her at Facebook.com slash Mott Freeman. And you're quite interactive with people on there, by the way, aren't you? Yes, I'm getting hundreds of Facebook messages and emails and notes. I've even gotten letters in the actual mail. I mean, I've told Simon & Schuster, give them my address because I do want to interact with people, especially those that are helped in their own search for missing relatives, there are still some 40,000 MIAs from foreign wars. Yes, it's quite a number. And so that has been terrific. I mean, that's been very fulfilling. In fact, I'll tell you, one family came to my reading at Manasquan, New Jersey, that wonderful bookstore. I know it well. I go to Point Pleasant Beach, which is only the town south. So I grew up going there. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I absolutely love that part of the world. Of course, I'm partial. Right. And this one family lined the entire front row. Well, it turned out that although their relative, who was also missing, I mean, they had an official explanation, but they 
became suspicious of that official explanation when they read my book. Mm. They bought five copies, one for each family member, because the wife of the family, the matriarch, if you will, father, did not return from the Philippines. And she also was a native of Monmouth County. So we spent a good bit of time talking and I gave them some information to follow up on. And then a few days later, I got an email from them saying that they discovered that her mother, the widowed mother of the woman that came to the reading, and my grandmother, Helen Cross, had coordinated their search for these missing prisoners of war in the Philippines, and she had a letter file. And he PDF'd the letters back and forth of particular interest was an exchange between Helen Cross, a four-page single-spaced letter to Admiral Chester Nimitz, and his reply. And it was riveting. Now, I wouldn't say there were any new discoveries in that, but it was stunning that this woman's mother and my grandmother were sharing correspondence and working together in that community in Monmouth County. (laughs) Wow. So many of those moments where you say, we really are all connected. Yes, indeed. And it makes the point that this was not a unique situation, unfortunately, that this is something that many people are suffering through. But for your grandmother, Helen Cross, to go out there and show that moxie, show that dedication to doing something, she's not going to sit there and just fill those boxes. That was important to her too, but that was part of her mission. Somehow she was hoping that he was going to get one of those boxes. She was certainly going to try, even if she had to dump a thousand of them off the pier there in Asbury Park. (laughs) If one of them would get to him, then she was going to dump a thousand. And if one out of 10,000, she was going to dump 10,000 in there just to try to do what she could. It's just an amazing feet of research. And then for you to have this be a living book where people are interacting with you is a great opportunity. And how nice of you, I have to thank you on behalf of all those people that you're willing to open up yourself to that, especially since it is hard reading sometimes to go to people and maybe there are some that you can help them find their missing loved ones. You're still willing to help. Yes, I'm more than willing to help because I knew the digging that I did was hard work. And sometimes it led to a dead end. You know, I'd spend weeks at a place going through documents. You know, the answer is not in this place. You know, you just have to start over and make a list of other options. And so it's heartening to be able to help people who are still searching for answers because, you know, sure, this was seven decades ago. And while a loss like that, an unaccounted for family member recedes in time, it does not recede in its effect on family. It's corrosive. It's hurtful. When my father would talk about this, he had a tough exterior. I mean, he was career Navy and a lawyer. Let's just say he didn't gush. And when this subject came up, the room, you could feel the pain was palpable. And that doesn't go away. You know, and so I feel really good about helping these people. And I've had lots of wonderful interactions and it's been really cool. Chapter 14 of the Jersey Brothers is titled, And Then There Was One, the USS Enterprise versus Japan. Very bold title, makes you want to sit up straight and (laughs) pay close attention and really respect the amazing feat of the men that were on that carrier. It seems impossible that such a storied ship ended up scrapped. Talk about the role your family played in trying to preserve it and why it ultimately failed. 
Yes. Well, that's a great question, by the way, because when Harry Truman came to the Navy Day celebration in New York Harbor in October 1945, Enterprise came up that Hudson and entered the harbor to the most hallowed welcome imaginable. And Truman himself signed a commendation that it become a monument and that people would be reminded of the pluck of these sailors and of the ship and so on and so forth. So that was October 1945. And Enterprise could not go back into service by 1945-1946. The prop airplane that they used in so many of those battles had been replaced by, you know, the more modern jet and her deck couldn't accommodate. It was obsolete in every respect, but it would have served as a wonderful museum and that was the plan. It had several iterations. Okay, so it was going to become a museum. Where was that going to be? Well, my uncle, Benny, who by then had moved to the West Coast, was living outside San Diego at the time, but also for quite some time lived near San Francisco, sort of spearheaded the effort to have it docked permanently. Sort of like the Intrepid that we do have. Yes, that's right. The Intrepid and also the Yorktown in Charleston, South Carolina. And the second USS Hornet is actually at San Francisco. But for the Enterprise... There were lots of pressing post-war concerns, and it went to Bayonne, New Jersey, as a holding place until it got worked out. And it was up to the Navy to do it, but, you know, the Navy was had a lot of post-war concerns. Budgets were tight. A lot of other ships were being mothballed, and so it sat there sort of on the part of the Enterprise Association that the expectation is that it would eventually happen. But it deteriorated at Bayonne. The funds were not raised. The expectation on the part of the Enterprise Association was that the Navy would pay for it and so on and so forth. And years went by. But in 1949, they sort of galvanized and a serious effort was made with the help of the San Francisco Museum of Science and Industry. And there it was at the Naval Station in San Francisco. I think they call it Treasure Island. It was going to be docked there and sort of be part of a permanent exhibit at that museum. There were letters that were written, editorials that were written, and everyone agreed this was a wonderful idea. But then the Navy realized they would have to incur the expense of moving Enterprise overland to San Francisco and then maintaining the ship after she got there. That was going to be a cost to the Navy, again, as I said, in a period of shrinking budgets. And so the idea foundered. And it sat in Bayonne for another several years. And in 1956, it sort of started up again. Well, they were going to do it on the Potomac. It was on the East Coast. It was an idea that had gained popularity early on after the war. And they were trying to raise, again, raise money for it, repair the ship, which was falling in further and further in disrepair. And then the Enterprise Association itself had its reunion in New York City, and they went out to Bayonne and had a big cocktail party on the deck of the ship. This was in 1956. And oh, my God, it's going to be great. She's going to be on the Potomac and so forth. And so they all had plenty to drink, but I don't think they had plenty of money. And and the Navy wasn't going to pay for it. And these guys were retired Navy. They they certainly didn't have the millions of dollars necessary. And so, again, it foundered. Your question is a good one, but it's looking back seven decades. 
here at that point, it was 12 years after the end of the war. It was almost too soon. The Russians had just launched Sputnik. We were looking forward. We were not looking back. It hadn't sort of receded enough in history that people understood the value of maintaining this as a monument, especially in light of its cost. So Benny worked hard on the West Coast version of it, first San Francisco, then San Diego, and then it moved back to the East Coast for reasons I've just described, and they just couldn't make it happen. They preserved the bell, of course, which is at the Naval Academy, only rings when Navy beats Army in an athletic contest. The anchor is at the Navy Yard here in Washington, D.C. I have a picture of myself standing in front of the anchor, and I'm about, you know, 20% the height of that anchor, and I'm not exactly short. <laughs> they were going to take the superstructure, which was, of course, Benny's home, Sky Control, the highest perch on the ship, and put it at the new Memorial Football Stadium at the Naval Academy. But because it was outmoded steel construction, they weren't able to do that, but they did do an exact replica, and it's at the Naval Academy today. So, they weren't able to preserve the ship, but they did preserve several aspects of it. I believe, actually, the nameplate is at a park in New Jersey. Veterans Memorial Park, maybe. Are you familiar? You're a Jersey Is that the boy. Jersey City one? Here it is. It's Rivervale, New Jersey. Oh, okay. So it wasn't what they had in mind, and they did try, but I think by the time they realized that the onus was on the Enterprise Association to get this done, they just didn't have the wherewithal to do it, and the Navy didn't have the money and wasn't naming it as a priority any longer. Last time that I drove down to the docks at Bayonne, they were refinishing the Intrepid, and I took a minute just to stop and oh, take a picture. Cool. And and so at least we are keeping the ones that we have now, and that's still a great museum. It doesn't have the history here, but it has its own history. It doesn't have the history of the Enterprise, but right. it is good that we preserve them. And you have to remember there are real-world concerns. You know, We took apart Appomattox Courthouse. You could hardly have a bigger monument to the United States history than the place where Lee surrenders to Grant. And a very yet, good example. Yeah, they took it apart. They were going to move it, and then a, a depression hits, and it just the weather ruins things, and you just never get around to it. The funds aren't there, so it happens. Right, and you know the Yorktown and the Hornet out in San Francisco, which is World War II era. It was the second Hornet. The first one was sunk. They're very close. They're both CB era ships, and I spent many hours on both of those ships mapping out, measuring, talking. And each of those ships has a resident historian, by the way. And it was the next best thing, talking to them since they were World War II era and aircraft carriers and had been made museums. They were terrific resources. You mentioned the Army-Navy game. People know that that's a rivalry, especially at this point before there's an Air Force. That's the, the big rivalry there between the services. Yes. In the Jersey Brothers, you have another thread that runs through it, and that's this stark assessment of General Douglas MacArthur's mistakes and shortcomings, uh, especially as it relates to Uncle Barton and other Navy men getting left behind as the Japanese overrun the Philippines. As a Navy family, did you always have this unromanticized view of MacArthur, or did you develop it in your research? Because having your bombers being destroyed on the ground at Pearl Harbor is one thing. You don't know it's coming. Right. Having it at the Philippines when you are told it's coming and don't get it or don't react, that's another thing entirely. So how did that come to you? 
I would not say that my family was vocal and anti-MacArthur sort of vocal critic that I can remember. Only when I began doing my research and when I found these Bureau of Medicine and Surgery files that I just referred to in Dorothy Danner's interview that said, what about the Navy patients? The order said nothing about the Navy patients, so they removed all the wounded Army patients from this Sternberg Hospital in Manila the night before the city fell to the Japanese and got them on a Red Cross ship and got them to Australia, and they left the Navy patients behind. And they were captured right from their hospital cots the next day. And of course, there are several books on MacArthur. Half of them are adulatory, and the other half take him to task for any number of arrogant mistakes. December 8, 1941 comes to mind as one of the best. MacArthur's Pearl Harbor is another. So I really developed my understanding of his shortcomings and his deeply flawed ego in the course of my research. And to be perfectly honest, the best material came from the MacArthur Memorial Archives in Norfolk, Virginia, where all of his papers are kept. It didn't come from the opinion of others. It came from material that they saved and alphabetized and kept testimonials about what was happening and why it was happening at the headquarters in Australia and the relegation, sort of low priority relegation of the prisoners in the Philippines. The most important thing to MacArthur was to repair his reputation of a lost command under humiliating circumstances and getting back to the Philippines and fighting his way up that island chain was much more important to him than rescuing any prisoners of war, rhetoric notwithstanding. And it was in his own archives. That's good that at least it's written down so you have a good primary source to go to because we all have historical figures we like, but it doesn't mean we should overlook when they screw up because they're, after all, just human beings. So they have flaws. You know, and also I, I think it's important to point out that it wasn't just MacArthur. It was he how he was surrounded by psychophants. His staff they were admirers. They really felt the glow of the great general and they did everything to protect his reputation to a fault. And so I feel like it wasn't just the man, but it was the man and the people he surrounded himself with. MacArthur very much wanted a land invasion of Japan. And here again, one of these Jersey brothers pops up, Bill Mott, your father. President Truman is thrust into this role of the presidency, has no clue that there's this thing called an atom bomb before he gets in there. And he's given the rosy scenario, you being from the Beltway or having worked in the Beltway are familiar with the many jokes about rosy scenario there and predictions of things like casualty reports. Your father brings him these more realistic, or I guess you'd say more accurate, more informed reports. Your father lived more than 50 years after Japan is forced to take that much maligned, the step they never thought they'd take option of surrender. And I wonder, we talked a lot here about looking back, about it being six and a half decades ago, about our priorities changing, about life and a new Cold War, really changing perspectives. 50 years, that's two new generations here being born. So I wonder if in that time, as your father saw succeeding generations of Americans question, ridicule, or even want to apologize for Truman's decision, how did his opinion change over time? Or did he not want to talk about that at all? His oh, no. role in that? He wanted to talk about it, <laughs> believe me. And his opinion never changed. It never wavered. He would write letters to the editor on the 50th anniversary of 
Hiroshima. My father and my mother, who, by the way, was an analyst with the Manhattan Project in Boston at MIT, they had not met yet. So she sort of had a role unbeknownst to my father. And they gave a joint interview to the editorial board at the Daily Progress in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is where they lived for the last 25 years of their lives. And he told that story again. He said MacArthur had his own intelligence machine in Manila as they were preparing for the invasion of mainland Japan. And that intelligence never made its way to Washington. He would not use the OSS. He did not want the Pentagon snooping around trying to figure out what he was doing. And Admiral Turner, who was the amphibious invasion commander, turned to my father because by this time my father had detached from the White House and he was in the island sweep across the Pacific. I guess he started just before Saipan, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, and so forth. And he was Admiral Turner's flag secretary. And Admiral Turner turned to my father and said, I'm looking at these decryptions and about the buildup on Japan. And Truman has been given the wrong information about what the casualty estimates are, because Truman came to office by surprise, of course, and said, I don't want the invasion of Japan to be Okinawa from one end of Japan to another. And I'm going to make a decision based on blood and treasure you know, I want to save as many American lives as I can. Well, these casualty estimates that Admiral Turner pulled together indicated we were going to lose somewhere between 600,000 and a million American lives in a mainland invasion. And he turned to my father and said, can you get these to the eyes of the president? Well, remember, my father had been an aide to Roosevelt, so he knew his way around the White House and knew how to get these casualty statistics freshly revised to Truman. And Admiral Turner said, pack your duffel, you're going to Washington. (laughs) And so my father did get those casualty statistics to Truman, who by this time was on his way to Potsdam. But my father knew they pouched it to, you know, they would either do it through the machine, the ECM machine in the map room, or they would send daily pouches out by plane to wherever the president and his entourage was traveling. And that's how those statistics got to President Truman. At the very same time, he is getting a positive report from the Alamogorda Desert that the experiment of the atomic bomb had been successful. You talk about Zelig-like moments. These things happened within days of each other. And that's when Truman made the decision to drop the bomb. Well, he wasn't going to make a decision to sacrifice another 600,000 to a million American lives. Hmm. And by the way, it would have been at least double that in terms of Japanese losses. Yes, yeah. And that was a decryption. That's not in the Jersey Brothers, I don't believe, but that the Japanese military said that there are no civilians left in Japan, was saying at the time that the Americans were coming. And not to mention all those POWs, your Uncle Barton, men like him, were all going to be slaughtered. I interviewed Kildegard Mahoney about her book. She was a girl of German parents. She finds herself stuck in Japan and during the whole of the war because they can't go to Germany, they can't go back to America. And she said they would have been on the list too have been killed. People, I would hope, would remember that those million people, that's a million somebody's sons that are dying and all, and it would have been genocide for the Japanese. And it reminds me, we mentioned Eisenhower, Ike, when people would criticize him about not getting to Berlin first, he tried for a long time saying, well, we would have just had to give it back to the Russians anyway, because we'd already agreed on that. And then finally, in exasperation, or eventually, he says, you know, I've heard many armchair generals say, well, we should have gone to Berlin. We should have lost those 100,000 men. 
but not one of them has ever offered to go and pick the mothers that would have yeah. to give a son for those 100,000, right? Very good point. Charlton Heston, just to name a name everyone knows, he would have been one of those bombers going over there. And so it was a terrible thing. But when you think about all the Chinese that are dying under the occupation, other places that the Japanese are occupying, those lives are not less valuable. It's just about ending the killing as fast as possible. So I think that that's something that that does come across there. I was interested to hear what your father thought. And so... Well, now you know. (laughs) And also, you know, another thing, just to return for a moment to the story arc about one family. This is a story about one family with actually the three brothers in the service, the Navy officers, but so also was the one daughter, Rosemary. Um, She was a lieutenant and she was the aide to the commandant of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And so four people in the service, you know, with one missing and so forth, the angst of a single family, really, I wanted to take a magnifying glass to that. So People understand when you read this, perhaps for the first time about the Pacific theater, maybe you've learned a lot about the European theater, but not the Pacific theater. These hundreds of thousands of families across this country were all experiencing this level of sadness and angst, yet they were working for the cause. They were working in factories. Telling about my family in such detail against the backdrop of the plot points of the Pacific War is really designed to make you not only understand it, but feel it in your solar plexus, you know? Well, you certainly accomplished that, I have to say. I picked up the book not knowing what I would find. I opened that first prelude there that we talked about, and it made me immediately be sucked into the story. Even the cover, I talked about all the people that designed and book together. The Jersey Brothers, three stars there under it, three small stars under it. Your aunt could have had a star of her own. Not a picture of three smiling young men in their uniforms that you might expect. Just the overturned helmet printed U.S. Navy that's just laying in the surf there, signifying the missing brother. I had one final question that subtitle there, A Missing Naval Officer in the Pacific and His Family's Quest to Bring Him Home. With the Jersey Brothers, you have at last really brought Bart home with this true account. It's bittersweet because so many, including his mother, never learn his true fate having passed away. But I wonder, what do you hope those readers that you spoke about who have lost loved ones in the chaos of war will take as inspiration from your solving that family mystery through this dogged determination and research and helping maybe some of those children that are a child like you were at Lilac Hedges know that they can find some closure in this and deal with that family trauma. Well, I'm learning as I'm going on book tour, but so frequently people come and sit down and tell me their own family story about a father who came home as a former prisoner and was angry and alcoholic. And they were mostly angry about there were no reparations. There was no apparent punishment in their eyes. And my story tells them, I feel like they come to these readings or they write me or they find me online and they say, your story brought me to tears because I really never knew what those men experienced day to day. They had a bond, these soldiers, these prisoners, these sailors, they had a bond. In a way, I think their families suffered more heartache than they did. They formed friendships. They felt that they were working for the best possible God-given cause. 
And I think one of the takeaways is, you know, if you read in the abstract about the atrocities and the deaths and the casualties in these island raids, and it was the deadliest war in human history. If you get close up and read about how they found joy in one another behind enemy lines, it was heartening to me. And I'd like to think it's heartening to others. I mean, it's sort of a roundabout answer, but I found peace by finding out what it was like for these prisoners and for my uncle. And he made some of the most important friendships in his life in those prison camps. And they loved him for it. They loved him for the things that he did. He wasn't some soaring hero, but he was a hero to his peers. And it was tremendous closure. It it wasn't in time to salve my own father's wounds and, and his family of origin, but I'm a spiritual creature. Maybe they are at peace. But I think it brings peace for people to know the humanity that went on behind enemy lines, even though they may have lost a loved one. I'm indebted to the person who put this book in my hands. It really was an enjoyable ride. And it's about New Jersey. We got to talk about Halsey in there. We, we think gave them the name, right? Oh, the Jersey Brothers. Well, they would joke about it because uh, Admiral Halsey was at the Naval Academy when Bill and Benny were there. This was, of course, in the early 30s. And, of course, Admiral Halsey was also from New Jersey. And they would lament about repairing New Jersey's reputation. All anybody ever wanted to talk about was the mafia when we had, you know, all these wonderful attributes. And the joke was the Jersey brothers, I believe it was of Sicilian origins, was the oldest all New Jersey mafia family. So unfortunately, that was a moniker at the Naval Academy that I don't think was intended to be complimentary. But, you know, they made light of it and had a good time. And who knew this many decades later, it would be uh, a convenient title for the book. (laughs) Serendipity once again. Exactly. Well, Sally Mott Freeman, author of The Jersey Brothers, I want people to know that there is so much more in this book than we talked about today. We talked about a lot of supplemental stuff, a lot of the background. So that's always my goal there. I don't want to give too much away, especially about such a great story here. I thank you so much for joining me and for sticking with the mystery of just what happened to your uncle at the hands of his captors and about this broader story of the Pacific Theater. It's an excellent family story. It's an American story. Yes, it's a war story, but we're human beings. It's part of the human condition. I hope listeners will pick it up and take this journey with you. It really is inspiring. And the history is just packed into just between these two little covers. I keep picking up the book, expecting it to be heavier because there's just so much (laughs) great information and great stories in it. I, I really enjoyed it. And I hope that comes across. Even if people haven't read about World War II before, if you are a human being pick up this book and enjoy it i wish you the best of luck with it and i hope you'll keep in touch about some of these stories you're finding looking forward to that next book absolutely and and your read of it was really thoughtful and perceptive and your questions were terrific and i'm very grateful to you for taking the time it was really really neat Battleship Missouri, 53,000-ton flagship of Admiral Halsey's 3rd Fleet, becomes the scene of an unforgettable ceremony marking the complete and formal surrender of Japan. In the Bay of Tokyo itself, the United States destroyer Buchanan comes alongside, bringing representatives of the Allied powers to witness the final capitulation. General of the Army Douglas MacArthur, Supreme Allied Commander for the Occupation of Japan, boards the Missouri. 
Fleet Admiral Nimitz, Pacific Fleet Commander, and Admiral Halsey welcome MacArthur and his Chief of Staff, General Sutherland, aboard. Admiral Nimitz escorts General MacArthur to the Missouri's veranda deck, where the 20-minute ceremony is to take place. It is Sunday, September 2nd, 1945. Again, the book is The Jersey Brothers, a missing naval officer in the Pacific, and his family's quest to bring him home. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take it Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just a few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. And the Jersey Brothers, by the way, was named one of Amazon's best books of the month in May 2017, almost the minute it hit shelves. My sincere thanks to Sally Mott Freeman for joining us and for sharing this story. Pay her a visit at Mott Freeman on Twitter or like her at facebook.com slash Mott Freeman. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or facebook.com slash history author. That's it for this Independence Day weekend installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. We're up to 28, and they're all five stars, which is really nice. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. Underway for the last time, the USS Enterprise moves from Brooklyn Navy Yard to Kearney, New Jersey, and the Wreckers. Thus is marked the failure of Admiral Bull Halsey's campaign to have the Big E preserved as a national shrine. The Enterprise took part in the first Allied attack on Japanese territory. At one point, was the only U.S. carrier in the entire Pacific. As Halsey's flagship, she earned battle stars in 20 of the 22 major actions in the Pacific. Obsolete in the jet and atomic age, the one vessel that most nearly symbolized the role of the Navy in the Pacific War heads meekly for the scrap heap. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Swarms of United States aircraft fly in formation overhead as the ceremony ends. The final United Nations victory has been won. The war is over. Peace is here.